And if you would turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. You'll find that on page 1211 in the church Bibles. Or if you have one of the larger print Bibles, 1876. Hebrews 12, and we'll read from verse 14 down to the end of chapter 12, verse 29. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no no one falls short of the grace of God. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears. He could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably, with reverence. And all, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. We've come after several months to the point in Hebrews where the writer is drawing together now all he has said in the rest of the book. He's bringing all of those threads together. And remember why he's writing this book. He calls it at the end, a word of encouragement. He knows the people who 
are first reading this book are people who are wavering in their faith. They're under pressure because of their commitment to Christ. This book is written to help them keep going. And right back when we started on this, we talked about the way this book brings encouragement. It doesn't just say, try harder, dig deeper, you've got it in you, just knuckle down and you'll make it. No, the encouragement comes to us like this. Think about God. Think about what he's done in Jesus Christ. Think what he's given you in Jesus. That is how you'll make it. Now in this book there certainly are details about how to live. But it's always presented like this. Because of what God has done, because of what he's given you, doesn't it make sense to live like this? Keep these God-given realities in front of you and you will persevere. And here, as we come close to the end, as everything is being summed up, we're pointed to the unshakable kingdom of God. And what ties all these verses together is the concept of inheritance. First, this passage says to Christians, live for your inheritance. Verses 16 and 17 mention Esau. And we need to think about him if we're going to understand verses 14 and 15. Verse 16 says that for a single meal, Esau sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So we need to ask, what exactly was this blessing that Esau missed out on? It's come up a few times already in Hebrews. The book of Genesis tells how God spoke to Esau's grandfather, Abraham. God said, Abraham, I have gifts for you. I will make you into a great nation. I will give you a land of your own. And I will bless the whole world through your descendants. God promised Abraham a magnificent, lasting inheritance. When Abraham died, his son Isaac then became heir to that inheritance. And then Isaac himself had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. And in that culture, the firstborn was the heir. So it's important to see, in Esau's case, the inheritance we're talking about was not money in the bank, or cattle in the fields, or a big house by the sea. The inheritance was God's promises to Abraham. But, the book of Genesis tells us, Esau despised his birthright. How do we know that? We know it from the way Esau lived his life. And Esau's priorities were shown really clearly in the one particular incident that's mentioned here. Esau was a hunter. One day, Genesis tells us, he came home from a hunt and he was famished. His belly was demanding food. 
and his brother Jacob was cooking some stew. Esau said, I have got to have some of that. And Jacob did a deal with him. He said to Esau, sell me your birthright and I'll give you a bowl of stew. Esau didn't hesitate. He said, what good is the birthright to me? How could God's future gift possibly be more important than the hunger I'm feeling right now? Take the inheritance rights. Give me the stew. Genesis says that is how we know Esau despised his birthright. He was willing to throw away God's inheritance for the sake of what he longed for in the moment. He chose something insignificant that he could see and touch over something monumental that he couldn't yet see and touch. He chose something that would satisfy him for a few hours instead of something that would satisfy him forever. But here's the thing about Esau. It is not that the inheritance meant nothing at all to him. When his tummy wasn't rumbling, he probably spared a few thoughts for what God had promised. We know that because years later, he was still expecting to get the inheritance. He assumed God's gift was going to be his. He was upset when his brother Jacob became heir to God's promises instead of him. So it's not that Esau cared nothing at all for what God had promised. The point is, he hoped to receive it, but he didn't live for it. It just wasn't his priority. What Esau actually lived for was short-term goals and short-term satisfaction. That was shown when he chose a single meal in the present over the unending blessing God had promised for the future. That's how we know he despised God's inheritance. His life showed what he loved. And in the end, Esau got what he loved. He got short-term pleasure instead of God's inheritance. When verse 17 says he couldn't change what he had done, the point is, time ran out. When Esau woke up to his loss, it was too late. The inheritance rights had already been passed to his brother Jacob. So this verse is not saying if you make a mistake, there's no opportunity for you to repent and be forgiven. The message of verse 17 is time runs out. If you live for rewards here and now, you are despising the inheritance to come. If you go on like that, time will run out you will find you got what you loved most. And you threw away what was really important. That's the significance of Esau's story. And it explains the previous verses. In verse 14 and 15, the writer of Hebrews says to Christians, live a life that shows what you love. As Christians, we will inherit God himself. God who is perfect holiness. 
So don't live for short-term gratification. Don't choose things that are temporary, like Esau's bowl of stew. There's plenty of stew that you and I can see and touch right now. This world is a big pot of money, sex, power, and popularity. But Hebrews says to us, instead of that, live for your inheritance. If holiness is what's ahead of you, make holiness your priority now. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The church on earth is a foretaste of the eternal kingdom of God. That future kingdom will be characterized by harmony and holiness. So Hebrews says, let's pursue those things today. And we know from earlier in this book, this is not talking about us making ourselves holy. Holiness is God's gift. But his gift is to be our priority. And if our greatest desire is to be with God, then holiness will be our priority. If we don't care about holiness, is it possible we could really care for our inheritance? Earlier in this book, we heard about people who'd been in and around the church fellowship. They even had some kind of spiritual experience. But it wasn't true saving faith. And that was shown to be the case when those people turned their back on God and his people. They took their stand with God's enemies instead. And here verse 15 says to the church body, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble And defile many. Falls short of here has the sense of disregard. See to it that no one disregards the grace of God. So this is talking about a carelessness about God's grace. That in the end misses out on God's grace. Tom Wright explains what this is about. He says... Within every church, there may be some people who are, as it were, passengers. They are enjoying being where they are. They like the company of Christian people. They feel safe and secure. But they have never done business with God for themselves. They have not sought and found his grace. That loving mercy which goes down to the root of their very being. And transforms them at the core. The people we've just heard about are in a similar position to Esau. They hope to receive God's inheritance. But they're careless about it. It's not what they live for. Their lives have a different route. In the end, they're living for what they can get here and now. And when people in the church are not trusting in God's grace, 
When pursuing holiness is not a priority for them, they can cause all sorts of trouble in the church. So there are two challenges here. First, ask yourself, am I just here because I like the company? Or because I find the atmosphere and the ideas to be comforting somehow? Am I here for the fringe benefits of Christianity? If that's the case, then Hebrews says you need to go further than that. Search for what Christianity is really about. You need to seek and find God's grace for yourself. And that means seeking the truth about who Jesus is and what he did and why he did it. Then the second challenge. If we can say, yes, I have come to Jesus, I have found God's forgiveness and mercy in him. Then let's ask ourselves, what am I living for? If someone examined not just my words, but my life, what would they discover about my priority in life? Would they discover, actually, I'm just living for today? For short-term rewards like Esau? Or when they looked at my life, would they discover, I am living for the inheritance God has promised me? Does my life show God and his promises are my priority? Hebrews says, live for your inheritance. And because there are so many distractions in life, if you're going to live for your inheritance, you need to think about your inheritance. It's very hard for us to live for something when we don't have it in mind. So Hebrews says, let's get our inheritance in mind. And we're going to do that by way of a contrast. Notice verse 18 starts, you have not come to. Then verse 22 says, but you have come to. So we're going to think here about two situations. Actually, two mountain experiences. The contrast between them shows what a great inheritance we have as Christians. Look first at verses 18 to 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom and storm. To a trumpet blast. Or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This describes Israel's experience after the exodus from Egypt. They came to Mount Sinai in the desert, and there Israel met the God of the Bible, the holy God. And it was a terrifying experience. Every part of this description conveys how frightening it was. Fire, darkness, storm. And to crown it all, a voice that was so awesome that people couldn't bear it. 
They begged not to hear it anymore. The people felt threatened. And they were right to feel that way. This was a presence so holy, if they came into contact with it, they would be destroyed. And so the warning came to them, don't touch this mountain, don't even come near it. That is what it's like for sinful human beings to experience the presence of God. We have very little sense of what the word holy really means. Until we run into something like this. It's not just that sinful people can't get into God's presence. If they did get in, it would be the end of them. The Israelites were kept away from the mountain for their own good. But the Bible tells us one day every single one of us will find ourselves in God's presence. There will be a judgment day. On that day, everyone will stand before God's throne. And if we stand there on our own, on our own merits, it will be more dreadful and terrifying than we can even imagine. The Israelites were not cowards. They were not drama queens. They were feeling a little bit of the terror all humans feel when they stand alone in the presence of a perfectly holy God. By ourselves, we are so different from him, it can only be a dreadful experience for us. And now, says the writer of Hebrews, now that you have felt a little bit of the the dark, stormy terror of my Sinai, now you're ready to appreciate the different situation of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The tone and the atmosphere here could not be more different from what went before. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, those are all different names for exactly the same thing. They are referring to the eternal kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, the city of Jerusalem was also known as Zion. It was the center of God's kingdom on earth. And at the center of Jerusalem was God's temple. And what we find at the end of the Bible is that the book of Revelation uses those Old Testament realities to describe a much greater future reality. It describes heaven coming to earth. That heaven on earth is what's described here as the city of the living God. 
And the atmosphere of Mount Zion could not be more different from Mount Sinai. Instead of terror, instead of fear of destruction, we find celebration and joy and security. But as we read this, we might wonder how it's possible. Because verse 23 says, You have come to God, the judge of all. This is the same God who terrified Israel at Mount Sinai. He hasn't changed a bit. He's still the holy judge. So how has the terror been replaced by joy? Verse 24 gives us the answer. It tells us that on this mountain, human beings do not stand alone before a holy God. We stand with Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. We are covered by the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what the whole central section of Hebrews was about. The sacrificial death of Jesus. And it's contrasted here with the blood of Abel. Early on in Genesis, we're told how Abel suffered violent death at the hands of his brother Cain. And God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In other words, Abel's blood is a serious problem between you and me. Abel's blood cries out for you to be punished, Cain. That was the word spoken by Abel's blood. But we're told the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It speaks the promise of God's grace to sinners. Jesus submitted to death as a substitute for sinners. His blood cries for sinners' forgiveness. It cries out that the debt of their sin has been paid. Their sins have been punished in Jesus' body on the cross. That is the new covenant God made with humanity. He doesn't demand our blood in payment for sin. He offers his own blood. When we place ourselves under the cover of Christ's blood, his death counts for ours. That's how men and women can meet the God of Mount Sinai with joy and with confidence instead of terror and despair. And it's not that holiness doesn't matter anymore. God is still perfectly holy. He's still the judge of all. But when we run to Jesus and put our hope in him, we will never experience God's judgment. Because of Jesus, we're declared not guilty. God sees us as righteous and perfect because of Jesus. Look how verse 23 describes us. It says, we are the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. 
The Bible often speaks about a book of life. It's a record of all those who belong in God's presence. And their names are written in heaven not because of what they've done, but because they have come to God through his son Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn. He's God's only son. All of God's riches belong to Jesus. And now they also belong to all of God's new covenant people. As we read this, we might wonder, is this ours today? Or is this ours in the future? The answer is both. It's ours already. We're not trying to earn it. Jesus has earned it for us. Our names are already on the paperwork. This inheritance belongs to us already. And one day we will enter into it. We've seen in previous weeks, there will be struggles for us to go through on the way. But we also have joy on the way because the future isn't a terrifying prospect anymore. Every day, we are a day closer to eternal celebration. Celebration in the presence of God our Father and Jesus our brother. And the more you and I think about this future, the more we'll want to begin investing in it here and now. That's what we're called to in the last section of our passage. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We've already seen that God's holiness has not changed. He's still the same God he was at Sinai. He still stands in complete opposition to evil. How could a holy God do anything else? To ignore evil would be to say it doesn't matter. And we all know it does matter. It matters to us. Don't we all long to see an end to injustice and oppression? And don't we realize as well the manifestations of evil, those things don't appear from thin air. They come from the evil that's in human hearts. And God has promised a day when he will deal finally and decisively with all evil. That day is described in words from the Old Testament book of Haggai in verse 26. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
The book of Exodus tells us Mount Sinai trembled when God appeared there. It shook. But God says, one day I will shake the whole creation. And everything that's temporary and insubstantial is going to fall away. Only what belongs in God's new creation will be left. Only the unshakable, eternal things are going to remain. That unshakable kingdom is going to be a kingdom of worship. And so, Hebrews says, invest your life in worship. Because only worship will last. You and I, as human beings, were built for worship. It's possible for us to give our worship to just about anything. From little wooden idols to our own dreams and ambitions to money in the bank to what other people think of us. But we're talking here about worshipping the God of the Bible. We have to ask, but what does it mean to invest your life in worship? What does verse 29 mean when it says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Well, it probably goes without saying, this is not a call for us to sing as many worship songs as we can. When the New Testament speaks about worship, it means much, much more than just singing. It means everything we do is done to honor and to serve God. It's done with the aim of seeing him glorified. To worship someone or something is to show that it has worth. And the greatest way we can show something's worth is by living for it. So Don Carson defines Christian worship like this. Worship is the consistent offering of of all of one's life and time and energy and body and resources to God. It is profound God-centeredness. So that means no division between what's for God and what's for me. What's holy and what's everyday and secular. Christian worship means everything is centered on God for us. And chapter 13 of Hebrews, which we'll begin looking at next week, is going to show us what that looks like in practice. But for today, we can say this. When we accept God's forgiveness through Jesus' blood, and then in appreciation of his grace, when we make a daily offering of our bodies and our minds to him, when we commit to eat and drink and work and rest in ways that honor him and glorify him, when we live our lives that way, then we are showing God's supreme worth to us. And we are investing in the only thing that will last. 
When judgment day comes and this creation is shaken, every insubstantial thing is going to be shaken away. Every other little God. All the chaff will be consumed in God's fire. All that will be left will be worship of God. It's the only thing that will last, so let's not waste our lives on anything else. We all have different situations, we have different vocations, different responsibilities. But in each of those personal situations, let's live now for the God who is going to be ours forever. And let's bring our time together to a close by praising the one who has shared this inheritance with us. Our our final two songs give our thanks and our praise to the mediator of this new covenant. Jesus, thank you.